Tonight's talk is Navigating Change for Supporting Gifts of Mindfulness. They're gifts because um, it's mindfulness that causes them to arise, and in turn, they are gifts to mindfulness. They help sustain and nurture mindfulness. And these four qualities are confidence, courage, acceptance, and letting go. I will use a few words in the um, <clears throat> in the oral tradition in which the, this lineage was passed down. Just because um, it often takes a poetic cluster of words to understand and get a sense of meaning for some of the terms rather than the, the simple English translation. So for example, courage, uh, or I'll start with confidence. One of the first things my teacher said to me in my early years of monastic training and practice in Burma was... Uh, all of the practice, all of meditation practice, is the awakening and strengthening of faith. And at the time, I had no idea what he meant, but it felt like a powerful transmission, powerful teaching. And and I knew enough already from having practiced for 10 years that he wasn't talking about um, like a religious faith, a belief system faith, or a blind faith. But I still didn't know what he meant. And it, it was some time later where I, I learned the term sada, sada, uh, which means to be able to stand within oneself, literally. But it also means faith, confidence, and trust. I remember um, as a as a very young child, uh, we sailed from Honolulu to Japan, and I lived for a year in Yakuska while my dad was working there. And it was a year of, of firsts for me: first snow, first train ride, first horse ride. And the first time I witnessed again what I didn't know was an act of of faith, trust, confidence. I I visited the Kamakura Buddha, the exact same Buddha, you know, a couple thousand times bigger than the one sitting on the the mantle here. And what I witnessed, and I remember it so clearly, I I remember the little kimono I I was wearing and another, uh, another one my sister was wearing. And I just witnessed people placing flowers and incense in some kind of gesture, some sort of emotion I didn't understand, but I felt it. I felt their emotion. And only later, you know, realized it was acts of of reverence and faith and confidence in the symbol. Um, And I knew the symbol was, was a symbol because we were able to walk behind this this massive Buddha, uh, as big as this lodge is long, and climb up the stairs inside of it. And it was totally empty. And I asked my parents, you know, where where is its stomach? And where is where's its ribs? Where is its brain? Where is all the things that are supposed to be inside? I don't remember what they answered, but, you know, I'm left with, two things, that there was nothing. There was nothing inside. It was just pure, pure space. And and outside was these, were these great acts that I learned later was um, uh, faith infused with wisdom, which, which becomes confidence. In the beginning... Uh, often we get what we what's called um, bright faith, and, and bright faith is 
when we're inspired somehow. We might be inspired at a place in nature or traveling somewhere. Again, as I mentioned, you know, wherever I visited monasteries in Asia uh, in the in the 70s, it was just like walking into a total landscape of peace. It's a place more peaceful than peace itself. And seeing monks and nuns and lay women and men move so slowly and carefully and mindfully, uh, like as if they were underwater, like everything was art or ballet, just incredibly beautiful. And in a situation like that, or in nature, or in love, or in the early parts of practice, we can feel this bright faith that manifests in two ways. One, clarity. Everything starts to be clear. We feel the body from within the body. And it's and it's very clearly just a dance of elements. You know, what are called elemental nature, earth, water, fire and air, but we experience them as textures and and streaming, flowing, and of course heat and cold. Uh, and wind element is um, movement, support, or vibration, tingling. All that is what body really is. So a moment of, of bright faith is one, this clarity about at least the nature of the body, later also the nature of the mind. And secondly, tranquility. Seeing clearly causes the body and mind to to feel unified, really still, very at ease, very calm. Clarity and tranquility are part of this bright faith. It's still vulnerable. It can be vulnerable to, you know, falling back into a... um, a kind of blind faith. If we don't grow this bright faith, comes a blind faith that we might then just hold on to what we hear in the teachings or read or think. Where it becomes fully matured is called confirmed faith or verified faith. And that's from our own direct experience. It's from seeing for, our, seeing for ourselves the illumination kind of insight, intuitive insight that arises like pre-verbal before any thought process, before the mind fabricates or interprets. As I said before, I think, turning lights on in a dark room or a flash of lightning in in the midnight sky that just illumines everything. When I think about... um, Faith, I also think about doubt and recall my journey into confidence, into growing faith into confidence and ultimately into an unshakable trust in this inner work we do, this inner exploration, that there really is a path to peace, to understanding, to liberation, opening the heart to loving kindness. Um, I had to go into, I had to learn what doubt is. If we want to know what confidence is, we must know doubt. We must know it as a, as a, as the emotion it is and its characteristic, what it does. And, and what it does is, is cloud our vision. And it, it hides other emotions, other mental states. So in my early t- years of practice in the monastery, I came up against such a doubt, I wanted to leave. I had prepared so long to come and have this, you know, period of um, very traditional practice, ordaining as a monk and being in one of the great monastic compounds in in Burma at a time when there is these very rare teachers of which only one is left very rare, um, highly enlightened, one at least fully enlightened. So it was a really precious opportunity. And yet I came right up against my wall, doubt about everything, my ability to, to, to be there, different culture, different food, you know, um, 
the, the bedding was less than an inch thick. There's hardly any pillow whatsoever. Uh, I couldn't wear my robes right. Every time I bowed, they'd fall off. I just, the doubt grew, you know, and I felt shame and I felt discouragement. I felt depressed. I started longing for the familiar, friends, food, home. And I really did have thoughts, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I can't do it. Every day we'd go and, uh, and uh, have an interview, report our experience to Sayadaw. So after reporting, I mean, it's hard to report doubt because it's the nature of doubt to cloud and confuse and bewilder. So it was hard to exactly say what was happening. So, you know, I'd struggle with saying, I'm, well, I'm trying to feel the sensations in, in, the, in the abdomen, I, but I can't find them and my mind goes off and starts thinking about things. And, and then later I'd say, you know, I, I thought about home and food and mangoes and papaya and, you know, my bed and stuff and whatnot. And then he realized, he said, he just said, you're, you're experiencing doubt. He just named it. And he said, initially you can't see doubt directly. It's really hard because of its nature to confuse and bewilder and fog the mind, it, it, the mindfulness isn't strong enough at first to see doubt. You have to kind of go in through a back door because the doubt is this cloud that, uh, that, uh, that holds a cluster or a composite of other emotions. So I mentioned some of those other emo- emo- emotions, missing things, longing for things, uh, disappointment in myself, uh, fear I couldn't do it, and sadness. You know, sometimes I just come back from a walking session, go into my meditation hut, and just weep. You know, so his instruction was: you need to dismantle this cluster held together, stitched together by this cloud of doubt. Just find one emotion. Just find and feel one emotion without the mental fabrication, you know, without the story. And I and I took that, you know, it was meeting Upandita was an immediate teacher student connection. That I never planned on having a teacher. I had been practicing for ten years. And I went to this center because uh, I heard of the purity of the of the lineage and the tradition and that you know it wasn't a guru thing and the teachers were just transmitters. But there was just this in, immediate sort of karmic connection. And I felt seen and held and understood by him. And I totally trusted him. So every instruction he gave me, I, did, I had enough trust, enough confidence to go and do it. And that was my way in. Uh, you know, I saw all of a sudden disappointment stepped out of that um, composite cluster of emotions by itself without the mental fabrication the narrative the story there it was just disappointment and there was a little loosening of the cloud of doubt and then in a a walking I saw longing you know by itself the story of what I was longing for friends family food the story the fabrication dropped away the pure emotion of longing and the physical sensations connected with it. And I saw that they were just momentary. Disappointment, longing, and emotion by emotion over the next few days, because it stuck around a lot, and many more times doubt came up. But always I, I then knew the portal, the way in, just finding and isolating one emotion at a time, free from the story, feeling its sensations, and feeling the pure emotive nature, how fleeting it is. You know, longing comes up just for a moment, and it's just this pull of the body, mind, emotion, towards something. It doesn't have, we don't have to know what the something is. We just have to feel that pull. And disappointment is a kind of caving in sensation, you know, a giving up, uh, a... Uh, 
disbelief in our ability, doubt is, you know, attacks us at a very core. Can we do this? Are we meant for this? Do I have the strength? You know, do I have the confidence to do it? Uh, and so it's a really important uh, quality to know about. And you'll pro- we'll probably mention over the next days uh, the five hindrances of which this is perhaps the strongest because it, it has a tendency to paralyze our practice. The other ones are just common, you know, sense, desire, aversion, ill will, sleepiness, restlessness. Doubts the strongest and holds the rest of them together. We've all had reason to doubt. We all will have more reasons to doubt in the future. Things occur that we have no control over. Sometimes it's a a perfect storm, you know, of natural catastrophic incidents and personal ones. Um, I still work to integrate some of the past pains, you know, intrusions, um, traumas that have occurred. I have the tools, but it's not like, you know, sometimes for our life they become our teacher. There are ways in which we learn to work with these perfect storm uh, hits that cause us to fear and doubt and so forth. But going through it is powerful because then we touch that place of, of growing confidence that grows into greater and greater strength of clarity and tranquility and eventually becomes an unshakable faith. We know we're on a, a path that's real. We know we have the goodness. We know we have the worthiness. We know we have the, the confidence and, and courage to use this short, rare life uh, to do what we're meant to do, to understand what there is to understand of why we're here. We're setting out on a, on a journey of discovery. Uh, and so later, it became clear that my teacher, Upandita, was saying, you know, in the beginning, we, we just need enough confidence to get on the cushion. You know, and then, and then take in what we can of what we hear. Only that that makes sense. The rest we don't need. Just put it on the shelf or let it go. Just the part that we feel this visceral connection with. And then try to put it to practice. And then once we put it to practice and see for ourselves if, if what we're, if what we've heard about what happens when we enter a stillness space like this and start learning to pay attention moment to moment, once we see for ourselves, then that confidence becomes confirmed, you know, and eventuates in an unshakable trust in ourselves and in in the path of life and in a, a, a journey of awakening. A man I, I knew, a Hawaiian man, uh, the late Herb Kane, passed away two years ago, was an, an artist and a visionary. Um, and like many of the Hawaiians, they had been dispossessed and felt shamed. Uh, they were told, you know, by the, the first visitors, British and then Americans, who uh, basically stole the kingdom. They were told that... Um, they, they, you know, they, they were basically shamed out of following their spiritual practices like hula, the dance form, and chanting, and um, all their art forms. And they were told not to speak their language. They all had to learn English. And even when I grew up in school, you know, the, the prevailing theory in cultural anthropology classes was that the Polynesians was the Jif theory of how Polynesians populated virtually the largest nation on earth, you know, 25 million square miles of what's called the Polynesian Triangle, Hawaii to New Zealand to uh, Rapa Nui, Easter Island. 
And Herb Connie, he knew a lot of these chants, and he, he felt a chord of connection to the mythology in these chants. And that's how he painted a picture of a double-hull sailing canoe. And that's how he gleaned that the early Polynesian discoverers three, between three and 5,000 years ago charted the whole entire um, Pacific without any instrument, no sextant, no compass. And that they did it by attunement, sense attunement, uh, and learning how to read the stars, learning how to feel currents through their body, through the canoe, and learning what the currents meant. In fact, learning all what's called, we could call turbulent systems. When I say tonight I'm talking about navigating change, we could call change turbulent systems. Stay here at Vallecitos long enough. I've been here two weeks. You know, every day is different. Sudden storms come through and thunder and lightning. You know, Grove and I were out the first first day of the last retreat. And um, it was a beautiful day like this, but out of nowhere came um, thunder and lightning. And the horses knew it was coming before we did. And they leaped like five feet, you know, an instant leap in response because it's the, the lightning struck quite near us. The earth is a turbulent system. It's always changing because of earth and because of water and because of heat and because of wind. These, all these forces along with gravity, it's a constant turbulent system. And if we pay attention to the outer ecology, eventually we see it's the same inside. The more we learn to read outer ecology, the more we understand inner ecology, and vice versa. If we really want to understand the world and the universe as it is, we look inside. Ultimately, that's where everything is. That's where, where we see and understand everything. In our own body, in our own emotional body, in our own heart-mind so Herb Connie drew this double-hull sailing canoe called the Hokulea. And it incited a group of friends. Um, a lot of them were my friends, my neighborhood friends, my surfing pals, my high school friends. And by the time they started this project, my university friends. I knew quite a number of them. And they started to feel their boldness. They started to feel their confidence and the desire to overcome their feelings of shame and doubt and dispossession. They felt that there was truth in these legends, in these chants that told them they, they did indeed have the intelligence. You know, Thoro Heyerdahl was one of them that said that Polynesian people couldn't possibly have charted the ocean like this. They didn't have the intelligence or skills you know, thousands of years before Vasco da Gama or, you know, Columbus and all those explorers. So they built the canoe. And then they began to learn about the stars. And they began a search for a master navigator, most of whom, of course, it was a gone era. No one had sailed in 600 years. No, no, uh, no deep ocean voyaging non-instrument, uh, a double-hull sailing vessel had sailed in 600 years. But they found in, the, um, in Micronesia um, a, a master navigator, one of a very few left, who knew how to do it you know, in his area of Micronesia. And he agreed to come. He's a, he was a, like a kinesthetic teacher. He wasn't very verbal, very quiet, inward person himself. And, and he said he'd come as long as they didn't pay him money. Just support him and sustain him and pay attention, listen to what he taught them. And if he was dissatisfied, that he would go home. And, and they agreed. So Herb and this group of friends, and uh, in particular one of my neighborhood uh, friends and high school mate, Nainoa Thompson, part Hawaiian, it began to learn from from uh, this master navigator. His name was Mao. 
and they prepared to um, to sail to Tahiti. You know, this was in the mid seventies. It's only been in the last ten years or so that this uh, this art of genetic archaeology has arisen. And of course, now they've they've proven by science that the Polynesians came from from Southeast Asia and Taiwan down through Indonesia, Micronesia, off into the Cook Islands, and did exactly what their chants said they did. So they trained, and I know paid attention. You know, at night here at Vallecitos, if you go outside, especially as the moon goes down, there's so many stars. Just There's more light than darkness. And so just think of the middle of the Pacific for... For these navigators, they call them way, uh, wayfinders. The sky was like a highway, you know, with with signs, with constellations that told them, you know, like when to turn right or left or make a U-turn. It was that clear to them. And when it wasn't, you know, when clouds were about, they learned to use their senses, the the soft gaze of the beginner's mind in taking in the visual experience and learning what sunset colors and dawn colors meant in terms of weather and then the reading of of clouds and the reading of the many, many kinds of rain. In Hawaiian alone, there's 28 names for different kinds of rain, rhythms of wind, and as I said, the rhythms, the currents in the water itself. Before Mao passed away a few years ago, he said that he was capable of um, sitting naked in a in a canoe in the middle of the of deep ocean sailing and and feel as many as five different currents in different directions at once through his testicles <laughs> pretty sensitive <laughs> pretty aware you know, in that way, it, it reflects entirely what I called yesterday, what we're doing here, six-sense-door awareness, six-sense-field awareness. We're learning simply of the small pasture, you know, our body, our breath, gradually expanding the four postures, and then learning how to abide in seeing without getting lost in the object of seeing or identifying as a seer how to abide in the experience of hearing without getting lost in the object of what is heard or identifying as being the hearer. You know, that's where we uh, self-reference experience. That's how we start to proliferate. And it's how we disconnect from ourselves and the world and others. So this group of bold women and men created community by building this canoe learned from this master navigator, Mao. And just before their first journey, Mao took uh, my friend Nainoa to southeast Oahu on a lava cliff uh, overlooking the ocean toward the south. And, and Mao said, Nainoa, can you see Tahiti? Tahiti was 3,000 miles over the, 3,000 kilometers over the curvature of the earth. But Nainoa closed his eyes and said, I can see it in, in my mind. And Mao said, good. Keep the vision of the island in mind and you won't lose your way. You will pull Tahiti to you from the cord of connection of the island to your center. In Hawaiian here, we call it pico, pico, by your navel. And then the training was just as I've been explaining just the moment-to-moment attunement to turbulent systems, currents, wind, weather, migration, fish, birds, everything, and learning to read. So they did a number of journeys uh, with Mao. And then was the big journey to Tahiti, where Nainoa was was his first solo experience as a navigator. So continue that story in the next section. Um, Just end this section, keeping the vision of the island in mind, keeping the vision 
of whatever our goal is. Peacefulness, compassion, healing, wisdom, understanding, keeping the vision of that goal in mind. And then having the sense of not losing our way by attending moment to moment of what our experience actually is, what is showing up in the senses, right? Our ear doesn't have to stretch out to find a sound. Our body doesn't have to work to feel a sensation. Our eyes don't go out there to, to see the trees and the river and the landscape at Vallecitos. So what we've been calling a receptive awareness. It's very relaxed. It's open, sensitive. Everything comes to us. And if we learn that quiet, if we learn that stillness, then that pre-verbal, moment-to-moment mindfulness becomes an extraordinary tool of awakening. It begins to read the language of sight and sound, scent and taste, body sensation, like a story, in the way that navigators could read the sky like a highway. The second from confidence is courage, courage on the journey. Uh, you call the Pali word here, virya, um, means resilience of heart or courageous energy. Without it, we, we, we could not take the next step. It's one thing to have confidence. It's another to have the energy, the courageous energy, to go a step further. The truth is, what I want you all to know, because I won't finish this entire talk tonight, is that all of these qualities arise at once. They work together. Confidence, courage, acceptance, letting go, work together. Of course, it's helpful to attend to each one, to get a a sense, a feeling for the nature and characteristic of each one. So what makes one feel virya? What, what makes me feel courage? And when I think about it, or I think about my life uh, as a yogi or my early childhood life, the first thing that comes to mind is, is trust or confidence and, and interest. I think about my friends who I surfed with in the late 50s and early 60s. Uh, some of them were my high school, t- our high school teachers, and they were among the first teachers who, surfers who came from California to, to surf the big waves of the North Shore of Oahu. So we not only learned from our teachers in school, but when they didn't show up at school, we knew where they were. <laughs> and then we'd fake notes from our parents, you know, and take the long drive out to the North Shore. And it was a step-by-step learning. You know, it's little waves uh, only takes a little courage. Bigger waves take more confidence and more courage. It was step by step, and it was this camaraderie. It was doing it with others. Inherent in all these qualities, as as you're hearing in my stories, are people working together in a very strong trust. Like Upandita was the first person... I trusted more than I'd ever trusted anyone in my life. You know, and that really helped a lot. It's like a, a really good coach that that helps you, you know, get the, the ball through the hoop, step by step. So in surfing, it was the same. A little larger, more confidence, more courage, and, and until, you know, I learned to surf those really big black waves that... Um, you can't believe that you caught them when you're back on shore looking back out. And I would never do it again. But at that, at that young age, you know, you feel this, this fresh, uh, vibrant, vigorous energy. Vibrant, vigorous, virile. All words related to virya, in fact. Virya, the Pali word. So, so reflect sometimes. You know, glimpse back on your life and things that give you, have given you confidence and giving you courage. It's a skillful use of, of, of what we call wise reflection, 
wise consideration. To know, to know courage, we have to know fear. We have to learn how to feel fear as it really is. And here again, it was Upandita who, who helped me when I was caught in a, you know, uh, a fear hole. It was like a hell hole. And my mind was proliferating. It was fear and anger proliferating around a story, you know, that I, I had been wronged or betrayed or shamed. And I couldn't get this story out of my mind. And I'm a month into a retreat. This is some years later. He's teaching in America. And and I'd report to him my experience, sensations, fear and fear sensations in the body. But because I kept reporting it for days at a time, he must have realized that you know I was in this fabricating story. I was embellishing on the fear, some memory, and so, you know just all these triggering components. You have a memory, uh, someone did or said something, and that triggers the anger or the fear, that triggers sensations in the body. Those sensations in the body, if you don't see them and read them clearly, understand their language, the embellishment grows, and the story proliferates. And then we have more moments of fear and anger and betrayal, and the story keeps proliferating and expanding. So he could probably clearly see this. We didn't report our stories to Pandita. We just reported the bare, raw experience. But he could intuit that, intuit that, and he said, um, he just said one thing. He said, you know, side by side with the proliferating mind, the discursive mind, the busy fabricating mind, side by side with that stream is the developing silent mind, the preverbal awareness mind. He said side by side they develop. And if you recall, I, told, I said that this morning. I said, if in one sitting a thousand times the mind goes off in memory, planning and story, that very exercise of coming back, feeling the, the anchor, the body anchor, or breath anchor, or sound anchor, has rippling consequences that we can't possibly know in the moment. We're more likely to feel frustrated by the thoughts and the story. But he said that, and again, like I said, I, I so trusted him, I relaxed. And so, one of the very next sittings or walkings, these pure emotions jumped out of their of the fabricated story. I just saw pure fear and pure anger. And, and they weren't enhanced or strengthened. They didn't suck me in. I didn't drown in them because there was no story. It was just a very pure emotion. And the awareness and strength and courage to feel it and the sensations in the body. And there's nothing like it, I tell you. It's so rare that we actually meet something as it really is. Every wisdom tradition talks about how the truth liberates. It's not just a metaphor. If you just feel the truth of sensations in the body without a story, something shifts in us. We relax. It's like a oh, it's like an aha, or oh yeah. You know, it's a little insight moment, a, a glimpse or a glimmer of a truth. So, so it's fear is fear that I didn't self-reference. It wasn't my fear. It's what I call a village fear, you know. It, it's just fear by itself. It doesn't belong to anyone. And the anger, also, not identified with it. And so that particular proliferating story collapsed. You know? And then I knew, I know, I know how to work when fear comes up. I know the way to do it. And, I, and by practice, I have more confidence and courage to do it. Another antidote for fear is metta, the practice we did this afternoon. Whereas vipassana, you know, metta and vipassana have the same aim. And that's to overcome our habit of self-referencing. That everything that happens in the world is about I or me or mine. 
and therefore very little sense of space, of other, of freedom. Because when we self-reference, there's this tension, tightness, grasping, clinging. So Vipassana, or insight, meditation, and metta have that same goal, to free us from that habit of self-referencing or identifying with experience. Vipassana does it by dismantling the component parts. I've explained many of them already tonight. The, the busy, proliferating mind, the emotional uh, content or cluster of emotions, feeling, tone, pleasant, unpleasant feelings, bodily sensations. Vipassana kind of sees the reality of that. And when it touches that, there's this aha moment. And it's just true. And because what we experience is true, there's a release. There's a softening. There's a letting go of that habit of attachment. Metta does the same thing, ironically, by this sense of expansion. We, we expand. Everything seems to expand. All just great space. And why metta and the other uh, similar qualities, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity, are called the immeasurables. Because they're qualities of mind. We could say they're, it's like metta mindfulness, compassionate mindfulness. Uh, and often we say, I was saying today, affectionate awareness is, is mindfulness with metta, or compassionate awareness is mindfulness with the care of compassion. They, they expand around things. So they expand around anger until there's so much space around the anger the story disappears. It's, it's as if we're sending this warmth and tenderness and care to the pain of the anger. And, and that's much more real than being identified and lost in the story about the anger. Think, think about that. You know, the heart expanding in metta until it just absorbs the energy of the anger. And the mindfulness that sees the various levels of story, emotion, feeling tone, body sensation. So Nainawa is on his first solo navigation journey in this boat, the Hokulea, double hull canoe. And everything is smooth sailing. You know, it takes about three weeks, a couple of weeks into it. Uh, and Ma was on the boat, but he wasn't saying a thing. Spending time under an old a blue tarp. No one knew what he was doing. No one hardly ever saw him. And everyone leaves navigators alone. You know, they're like you. They're like yogis. They, they need to be really quiet and inward and tuned in to their senses so they can feel the environment coming in to their body, coming in to their senses, coming in to their intuition. Only once did Mao come out, and he came out one evening and said, put up the storm sails. And he went back into his little cave, cubbyhole. And everyone, all the, everyone looked at each other because everything was clear. And later they realized that, that uh, the Mao, the master navigator, could even smell a storm from miles away. It could smell rain like many animals can. So they put up the sails and sure enough 20 minutes later, like the way we have sudden storms here, there was a this gale force winds and 12 foot seas chop and the whole sky was covered. And I know I had been using, particularly had been using the moon as a guideline the moon and some of the brighter evening stars. And then he, so he just freaked out and just kept thinking to himself, I lost the moon. <laughs> I lost the moon. And, and that's exactly how he, later he was ex explaining, sharing with me. You know, he, he was so identified. So at one moment, attuned to where he was in this vast, you know, oceanic body of water 
And then he was completely freaked out because he felt he lost the moon. And they all put on these storm jackets, which kept them dry but not warm. And he pulled his hood down because he didn't want people to see the fear in his eyes and the strain around his mouth. And he went back to one of the hulls, to the stern, and put his elbows on the gunwale. And he's just shaking, more from fear and worry and anxiety than from the cold. And he, and he then he told me, you know, I was, just, I was just doing this for like 30 minutes. And, and then I just, there was nothing left to do. I was going over and over in my mind. I lost the moon. I lost the moon. And then I realized how ridiculous that was. That story of him losing the moon. You know, conditions changed. And the moon disappeared. He didn't lose the moon. He was identified with losing the moon. When the story dropped, he started to feel his body. The shaking, the fear, the anxiety, the worry and some of the cold. And then he said, it started from my feet. He was telling me this at my dad's um, celebration of life funeral when he and his family came in a double hall canoe take my dad's ashes out to sea. And afterwards we just party, have a good time, tell stories. So he's telling me this in detail. He said, I, I felt it in my toes and feet, just a warm sensation coming up my legs and then my hips, and then it lingered around my pico, my center, the navel, and then the rest of my body. And everything changed. I, I suddenly felt total, totally relaxed and at ease. And from somewhere in here, I, I knew where the moon was. You know, and he says, I don't know how, but I just knew where the moon was. And, you know, that's how they're trained. That's how we're trained. We're, we're trained that we can't make insight happen. We can only still the mind, learn to relax, learn to be, have this pre-verbal, pre-cognitive moment-to-moment awareness. And that, like, cleanses the room for a guest whose arrival we don't know, for that insight. So he knew intuitively where the moon was, and they set, changed course. And two hours later... The storm disappeared. There was the moon. So the last little ending here, and I'll continue on um, acceptance and letting go over the next couple of days. In everything I've been saying so far about confidence and trust and about courageous energy or strength of heart. It all has to do with our, our ability to sustain present time awareness. That, that was the other thing that Upanita said to me that first day of instruction. You know, not, not only that is all, all spiritual practice, all meditation, the awakening, and strengthening of faith. But he also said this. He said, your only task is to be in the present moment. And I will take care of everything else. And that gives us the freedom, the liberty, the the confidence, and eventually the unshakable trust, and the courage to be okay with just abiding in here and now, that there is only this moment. And then there's nothing we can't do. There's nothing at all in heaven and earth that can prevent us from having the courage and the confidence when we need it. So one of the last times I was allowed in Burma, before I was banned for nine years, I was having this conversation with um, the democracy leader, Aung San Suu Kyi. We had become friends and I had met her family. And we were having tea. She was saying, you know, this, this morning, such and such a diplomat came to try and talk me out of what I'm doing. You know, saying you're, you know, 
you're a 99-pound diminutive woman against this battalion of powerful generals with immeasurable, you know, uh, weaponry and capacity to oppress, to cause fear, uh, to use fear as a weapon, to do anything they want to you. You know, I fear for your life. Maybe you should consider going back to England, you know, to be with your family. And she just said one thing, she told me. She said she told that diplomat, why should I be afraid of what is right? When we know the truth, when we know what is right, when we can hold the vision of whatever our island is and mine, we won't lose the way. And we will pull that truth to us right out of our hearts. We will pull it to us. And nothing or no one can stop that. So just be silent for a moment and consider the qualities, confidence, courage, uh, and the kindness that's behind them. There's no courage without kindness. the walking period now. Just see how much you can feel from within your body, your posture, whether you're standing or walking. Give yourself a moment, a two, on each end of your walking path to just stop and sense, you know, sense with your eyes relaxed, sense the field of sound vibration. Sense fragrance, flavor. And sense your own intuitive heart, mind. Just where you are. Make it really, really simple. The key to this practice is learning its extraordinary nature of simplicity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.